one of the roles I have as pastor is to lead the staff at Green Tree. Um, and, I, and I do that reasonably well. I have fairly good leadership gifts and skills. And so um, things on our staff tend to run fairly smoothly. I tend to have pretty good relationships with most of our staff members. But every once in a while, I'll, I'll mess up. Every once in a while, I'll say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Every once in a while, I'll be uh, relatively insensitive uh, to the problems or the concerns of one of our staff members. And occasionally, I'll do that in a public setting. Occasionally, I'll do that like in a staff meeting on a, on a Wednesday morning. And, the, and we have a staff member uh, who uh, I've been friends with for years before even coming to Green Tree, but this, this person's on our staff. And this person has a look that, that she gives when I do that. And she doesn't really have to say anything to me. It's just kind of over the glasses. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's the look that says, you think you're in charge, but we're just letting you be in charge. But if you keep acting this way, you're not going to be in charge anymore. I get all of that out of just kind of over the glasses. And then I back up and I correct myself and figure out what I did wrong and, and move on. There, you've probably all had this experience where what somebody didn't say actually spoke louder than if they had said something in the first place. If you have a Bible like I have, which... Um, is one of these Bibles that has all of the red verses, all the things that Jesus said in red, um, so that you can tell the difference between what Jesus said and what, when somebody else is speaking. And if you go through Luke's Gospel, if you have a red, a red letter Bible like that, you find page after page after page, which is at least half, if not more, uh, three quarters worth of red ink. Jesus talked to everybody. Jesus engaged with any person with any question in any set of circumstances, whether they were the richest of the rich or the poorest of the poor, whether they were a person of great character and morally upstanding, or whether they were the the dregs of society, so to speak, and criminals and prostitutes, wherever Jesus found people or wherever people found Jesus, he engaged with them. They asked questions, he would answer. He would sit for hours and teach people. It got to the point where the crowds were so big, he would have to, he would have, you know, if he's sitting on a shore and he was teaching, he'd actually have to put him in a boat and pull it out from the shore a little bit so he didn't get crushed by all the people coming to him. But there was never a moment in Jesus' ministry where he didn't talk to people freely and openly about who he was, about his role as Messiah, about his coming and ushering in the kingdom of God until you get to the middle half of Luke chapter 22. And the middle half of Luke 22, we pick up what Luke recounts as the five interactions of the trial of Jesus. On the morning of his death, Jesus has been accused, he has been arrested, and there are five different places where Jesus goes, or five different groups with which he interacts during what we call the trial of Jesus. And on these particular pages of Scripture, the red ink slows almost to a halt. Jesus becomes very, very quiet. Mike started out our worship service this morning talking about Isaiah 53. As a lamb was led, Jesus Jesus becomes very, very quiet. Mike started out our worship service this morning talking about Isaiah 53. As a lamb was led to the slaughter, is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What is it about the silence of Jesus during his trial that could possibly speak redemptively into the lives of the people that were engaged in this legal atrocity and could possibly speak into your life and my life this morning some 2,000 years later? 
Let me give you just a very brief context for these passages of Scripture. The five different stages of Jesus' trial, which probably took place sometime between 3 o'clock in the morning and 8 o'clock in the morning. Probably by 8 or 8.30, Jesus was on his way to Calvary to be crucified. The verdict had been given by Pontius Pilate. Uh, So everything we're going to look at this morning took place during those four or five hours. As I said, Jesus made five stops, so to speak, along the way. The first stop was at the priest, uh, excuse me, the home of the high priest. The second stop was when Jesus was in front of the entire Jewish leading council. There was probably a meeting place somewhere around the temple where Jesus was called to. It might have been a private residence, but the entire council is gathered at another location. That's the second interaction Jesus has. The third interaction is with Pilate himself. When the Jewish leaders take Jesus to be Pilate to ask to take Jesus to Pilate to ask him to put Jesus to death. The fourth stop on the journey is when Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, and the fifth stop is when Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. We're going to look at the first four of those this morning, and we're going to consider the silence of Jesus or the very few words which Jesus speaks. So we're going to look at those four interactions and see what we can gain from from the quietness of Jesus that might help us understand more of his character and more of how to apply a relationship with him to our lives. I'm not going to read through this entire section of Scripture. It's way too long. Uh, I'm going to read bits and pieces of it. And the first part we're going to read is found in chapter 22, beginning in verse 54. The passage will be on the screen, uh, or you can follow along in your own Bibles. We're going to read through verse 62. And I'm calling this section of the trial a telling glance. A telling glance. Hear the word of God as Luke records it. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father God, so often in this sermon series, we have considered the words and the teaching of Jesus. We have looked at his life of ministry as he has interacted with people, and he welcomed everyone. He welcomed the smallest children to the most aged. He welcomed the rich and the poor. He welcomed those who considered themselves saints and those who were pretty convinced they were just sinners. And he spoke with them and he taught them. And now, Lord Jesus, we come to the, to the, the most important moments of your life. You, you were on, your, on trial for your life. And you have very little to say. And yet even in that silence, even in the quiet, you are speaking to us. And so I pray this morning that you would do just that. 
Lord, it's not my words that matter at all this morning. It is only your word. So I pray that you would use my... Lord, it's not my words that matter at all this morning. It is only your word. So I pray that you would use my... So I pray that you would use my feeble attempt and make it what you want to say to your people this morning. Father, you know my sin. You know my heart. I confess my sin to you. I ask that you would not let me stand in the way of what everyone needs to hear and learn this morning. Lord God, to you alone be the glory. We pray that, Lord Jesus, you would come, that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, the first uh, section that we just read, I'm calling a telling glance. And the reason is this. Uh, Peter had been warned by Jesus about his denial. If you go back into chapter 22 and you look around verse 31, you read a little bit there. We're not going to do that this morning. But Jesus says to Peter, while they're sitting at the, at the table, having, having what has become the Lord's Supper, communion, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you know, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And, uh, and that's Jesus' way of saying, uh, Peter, you're in a spiritual battle. Satan wants to do you in. He, he's asked permission to, to, to have free reign in your life, but I am praying for your protection. To which Peter responds, boy, Lord, thanks for telling me that. That's great because I feel like I'm in big jeopardy. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He says, Lord, I'm ready to, to go to prison for you. I'm ready to die for you if need be. <laughs> and Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, before the rooster crows, before this night is out, you're going to deny you ever even knew me three separate occasions. Peter had been warned. And yet Peter, like maybe like you, certainly like me, his response is, Lord, I can handle it. <laughs> Lord, I got this one covered. You know, sometimes I pray, you know, Lord, these people have really big problems, really help them. But you know what? I'm doing pretty well over here. I'm okay. I, I got things covered. <laughs> How foolish that is to have any kind of self-confidence when it comes to a spiritual battle. It's not that we're always defeated in our spiritual battles, but we are defeated when we rest in our own strength. And Peter has been warned. He has responded by saying, God, Lord Jesus, I can handle it. Don't worry about me. And now he's a complete failure. Now he has to look in the mirror at himself. Now he has to see his own character for what it truly is. He's come to an end in himself. He sees that he has done nothing but completely blow it. But not only does he have to look in the mirror, but Luke says very specifically that Jesus looked at Peter. At the very moment when the rooster was crowing and Peter realized that the words of Jesus had come true, whether Jesus was perhaps passing him on his way out of the courtyard, on his way to his next stop, or whether perhaps he was on a veranda close by, they made eye contact. Now, what do you think that look told Peter? How would you look at a friend who said to you the night before, I'll go to jail, I'll die for you, I'll stick up for you, I'll do whatever need be to stand by your side, only to actually be within earshot of hearing them say three times, I never knew that guy, I never knew that gal. How would you respond? How would you look at that person? I thought of how I would look at them, and I've, and I, and I've got some words that I've written down here of, of how I think I would probably respond. Um, disgust is one. You know, how could you possibly do this to me? We're such good friends. Disappointment, disappointment, maybe even a bit of hatred in my eyes. This friend who is now pretending like they don't even know me just to save their own skin. Scripture doesn't say how Jesus responded. And so this is, this is what I'm going to call an educated guess. You won't find it in Scripture, but I'm basing this guess on the character of Jesus. I actually think he gave Peter the perfect look. And I think it was perfect because I believe it held two things completely in the balance. I believe he looked at Peter with truth. 
I believe he looked at Peter, not to say, Peter, I told you so, but simply to say, Peter, let's acknowledge what's just happened. You, you, you're, you've blown it as bad as you possibly can blow it. You've done exactly the thing that you claimed you wouldn't do. Peter, you, I, I told you you needed spiritual help and, and you ignored that counsel. So Peter, we've got to deal with that because that's where we are. And I believe Jesus looked at Peter with truth, but I believe Jesus also looked at Peter perfectly with grace because the character of Jesus is a character of forgiveness and it's a character of compassion. And I believe this is the key moment of Peter's life. I don't think Peter's key moment came when he walked on water. I don't think Peter's key moment came when, when Jesus said, who does everybody say that I am? And people were giving different answers. And Peter said, but, but we know that you're the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. I don't think that was Peter's key moment. I don't even believe that Peter's key moment came after Jesus rose from the dead and reinstated him, as you read at the end of John's gospel. I believe this was the defining moment in Peter's life because it was the one moment where Peter came to the end of himself. He was hopeless. He was broken, and he was face-to-face with his Lord. I can't imagine a worse place or a better place for Peter to be because I believe now that Peter's come to the end of himself and he's broken, he now has the opportunity to take the first step in the process of redemption. And I believe that this telling glance said to Peter, Peter, you're a failure. (laughs) Peter, you failed miserably. And Peter, I love you so much. I'm going to pay for that failure, and I'm going to redeem you. There's something about coming face-to-face with who you really are and experiencing forgiveness that is very spiritually healing. I had an experience way back when I was in college. We were sitting in the library. I don't even know why we were in the library. I'm kind of surprised we had found it. Uh, But a group of guys from our soccer team, and one of the guys had a girl who had kind of had a crush on him. She was following him around campus a little bit. And and he was talking about her and he wasn't talking in very kind terms. And we're all laughing at her expense. You know, nobody's around. We're sitting back in this little corner, four or five of us. And one of the guys comes around the corner and says, she's sitting right there. Went around the corner, tears are just streaming down her face. But to my friend's credit, he got up, he walked over and said, can I talk to you? They walked outside and he came back a different person. And she did too because she offered him forgiveness. And I tell you what, I, I hope I never feel that ashamed again the rest of my life. I can't tell you how bad I felt for being a part of that. But I also saw a difference in his life going forward. And I saw God do something redemptive, even in that, even in that telling glance moment, so to speak. Jesus doesn't have to pass words with Peter. He simply looks at him. My second observation comes in the second part of the trial, which is Jesus gathered with the Jewish uh, council together. And I call this section a no-nonsense rebuttal. Look at verse uh, 66 through 70 in chapter, we're still in chapter 22. When day came, the assembly of elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and the scribes. And they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you would not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. 
a no-nonsense rebuttal. At dawn, this leadership group gathers together for, for what could be loosely called a trial, but more accurately would be called a lynch mob. Uh, some of the nuances in this passage that we're not going to look at, there's some great books out about the legal ramifications of this tri- trial or the illegal ramifications. Everything that the Jewish leaders have done up to this point is against their own law. They are so bent on Jesus' destruction that they're willing to break their own law in order to do him in. And so they bring him in and they say, are you the Christ? Tell us. And Jesus, in his longest discourse in his trial, which is very, very short, gives a no-nonsense rebuttal. And I think, in a sense, Jesus says, you know what? I know you're not looking for answers. (laughs) I know that your question is disingenuous. It's really not a question at all. It's really uh, you're looking for ammunition with which to attack me. And so he says, if I tell you, you won't believe. In other words, if I tell you I'm the Messiah, you're not going to all of a sudden repent and come to me for salvation. And if I ask you if you believe, you won't even answer that question. So it's Jesus of if he's saying, guys, who are we kidding here? How about we just get on with this? Let's call it what it is. And Jesus isn't willing to enter into uh, some charade where we, we mix words with one another and we, we try to kind of go around the corner to get at what, we, what we're trying to get at. Jesus says, fellas, let's just say what this is. You want to do me in? There's no point in me telling you. You're not going to believe and you won't confess. So let's Stop the charade. But Jesus doesn't end with that part of his rebuttal. He does, I believe, offer the opportunity for repentance. He says in verse 69, but from now on, the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite name for himself, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus is saying, fellas, you got one more chance. Listen to me carefully. A new day is dawning. A new age is coming. And with this day begins a new era in the kingdom of God. And I will be seated in power. I will no longer be among you as a servant, but I will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And you need to understand the truth of that. And you need to deal with that right here and right now. Jesus offers them a chance for repentance. And their response is simply to follow along the same line of reasoning they've been to, been going with so far. And they say, are you the son of God then? In other words, Jesus, we we don't believe, but we're going to put that in the form of a question. Are you the son of God? This question is really a statement. Have you ever had somebody ask you a question and it really isn't a question? They're really trying to tell you something? I had this experience last night. We were at the store, and I'm standing in line. I'm buying a couple of paperback books for Cindy, and I hear this conversation. I never turned around and looked because I was too scared, and you'll know why in just a second. But I'm buying these two books. I'm standing in line, and there's a husband and wife behind me, and they have a child with them who's about 10 years old. And uh, the wife says something along the lines of, I've forgotten to get this or that, and I'm going to run back, and I'm going to pick something up. And here, hold my purse for just a minute. Now, every husband's had that experience. Your wife, at some point or another, said, here, hold my purse. I'm going to go do this. And so he takes the purse, and he turns to the 10-year-old, and he says, here, honey, hold this purse for your mom, okay? This is where I knew it was going to get interesting. So this, she begins to ask a question that I would suggest is not a question at all. Her question is in two parts. The first part is, are you handing a $500 purse to a 10-year-old? That's question one. And question two is, have you lost your mind? <laughs> now, at this point, I'm staring straight ahead. I told you this is where I got scared. I'm, staying, I'm going, Lord, please give him the right answer. Please give him the right answer. Please give him the right answer. 
The right answer is, honey, I've lost my mind. And no, I would never dream of letting her hold that purse. I've got it right back here in my hands. That's the only answer to that question. But he says, sure, what's the problem with that? <laughs> uh, fortunately, the guy at the counter said, next. And I got up and got up before the police came and there was bloodshed. But sometimes people ask you a question that's no question at all. They're making a statement. And the Pharisees and the scribes are making a statement. Are you the son of God? They're not asking a question. They're saying that's impossible. If that's what you say you are, you've given us the ammunition with which we can hang you. And Jesus, again, not willing to be argumentative with them, simply says this, you say that I am. In other words, Jesus says, your words are true. I will not deny them. Okay, I'm not going to say something that isn't true, but you're responsible for the conclusions you draw. If you decide I'm not the son of God, that's on you. It's not on me. And you'll have to live with that decision. Jesus offers a no-nonsense rebuttal in the second stage of his trial. The third stage happens in the very first three verses of chapter 23. We finally get to, uh, to Pilate's governor's mansion, and uh, I'm calling this section Honesty in the Face of Incredulity. Listen to the first three verses in chapter 23. And the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute or pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ the king. Now, let me stop there for just a second. Do you remember when they asked Jesus whether he should pay taxes or not? Remember what his answer was? He said, Give me a coin. Somebody handed him a coin. He says, Whose inscription is that on that coin? They said, It's Caesar's. Jesus' response is, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. So this is a flat-out lie. When they said he tells us not to pay taxes to Caesar, he had actually said exactly the opposite. In verse 3, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. I'm calling this honesty in the face of incredulity. The Jewish leaders have, have said that Jesus is guilty of sedition, that he's guilty of leading a rebellion uh, against Rome. Now, Pilate knows what sedition looks like. Pilate has dealt with, uh, in his day, what, would be, what be, would be considered political terrorists. He's dealt with insurrectionists. He, he knows a criminal when he sees a criminal. And Pilate is listening to these guys talk, and he's looking at Jesus, and he's listening to the accusations, and he's looking at Jesus, and he's kind of going, in his mind, this does not match up. And so Pilate finally looks at Jesus, and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And in the Greek, the word that's emphasized in that sentence is you. Are you the king of the Jews? This is Pilate saying, guys, I know what criminals look like. This guy? Are you kidding me? Now, you have to give Pilate that much. At least he was, he was trying to be a fair judge in this process. And he can't believe that these folks are, are questioning Jesus on this level. He just simply doesn't believe that it's true. And then he turns to Jesus and he asks this question, are you the king of the Jews? But again, I don't believe that this is a question of one considering faith, but rather it's coming from complete skepticism. It's coming from a position of this, this can't possibly be, be right. Uh, there's there's got to be a hole in this argument somewhere. You look no more like a king than I look like the man in the moon, so to speak, is what Pilate's saying. Uh, do you remember the early days of, of, uh, of talk television uh, shows when uh, Phil Donahue was real big, when he first started out kind of the, before Oprah? And he would get people in there, and he always kind of had that reaction. I can't believe this is true. What are you talking about? And he'd dig a little bit deeper. I, I kind of got a Phil Donahue image of Pilate here. You know, Pilate just, he can't quite get his mind around this. Something isn't quite adding up. 
But he doesn't turn to Jesus and say, are you the king of the Jews? And if you are, I need to worship you. I need to bow down before you. He's saying, I, sorry, you don't look the part. <laughs> I don't believe the accusations are true because I don't see how you could possibly be the king of the Jews. And he plays the, spark, the part of the skeptic. But Jesus says a very similar answer to what he gave the Pharisees a little bit earlier. You have said so. Again, Jesus is saying, Pilate, you've said it, and I will not deny it. But you would do well to consider that claim. (laughs) Don't judge by just appearances. And Jesus offers honesty even to a skeptic. And then the fourth of the five stages, and the last one we're going to look at this morning is found uh, beginning in chapter uh, 23, verse 6, and reading through verse 11. It's one other encounter that Jesus has before he goes back to Pilate. Uh, Hear what this says. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at this time, or at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. They arrayed him in splendid clothing and sent him back to Pilate. Herod Antipas is the the son of the Herod who had all the babies in Bethlehem killed when Jesus was born. This is his son, and he takes up right where his father left off. Uh, Everything that's wrong with a person in power you find wrapped up in Herod. Corruption, uh, self-seeking. He actually married, stole his brother's sister from him and married her, Uh, and John the Baptist called him on the carpet for that. But Herod is self-seeking. He's self-promoting. He's arrogant. He's ruthless. He's impetuous. He is heartless. Everything that's wrong uh, about about a leader, everything that's wrong about a a politician, so to speak, uh, is wrapped up in the person of Herod. Uh, I remember a politician once say, when I'm not kissing babies, I'm stealing their lollipops. Now, we got a lot of great politicians as well, but there, there's, there's a group out there that says, you know what, I'm in it for power, and that was Herod. And Herod was self-seeking to the point that he had John the Baptist murdered out of a drunken whim. He was at a party one night, and a woman danced in front of him, and he was so enthralled with her beauty. He said, I'll give you half my kingdom. What do you want? And her mom said, ask for the head of John the Baptist, because John the Baptist is a thorn in my side. And Herod, in his drunkenness, sent the executioner and beheaded John the Baptist and brought his head out on a plate for all of his dinner guests to see. That's who Jesus now stands before. And Herod wants to see a show. Hey, Jesus heard about you. Heard you walked on water. Heard you fed 5,000. Heard you gave a blind guy his sight back. Heard, heard that a crippled guy walked. I heard that even Lazarus got out of the grave and walked. Show me something, Jesus. Let me see some of the show. <laughs> Not at all interested in Jesus as the Lord but rather in simply it's the next form of entertainment for me. And when I'm done with you, I'll move on to whatever lies ahead. But King Jesus does not bandy word with this pompous fool. It's interesting that he gave Peter a look of both truth and hope, that he even was willing to warn the Jewish leaders of the outcome of their decision. And he even cautioned Pilate not to judge on appearances. But this one who by his own self-definition came to seek and save the lost has nothing to say to Herod. It's the only person in all the New Testament where they come to Jesus with a question and Jesus flat out refuses to speak. 
Jesus offers no answer. Why? Because Herod shows his true colors. When Jesus won't answer, Herod mocks. He ridicules. He scorns. Herod has no interest in faith. Herod simply is a mocker. Herod is one who is going to enjoy some of his time at Jesus' expense. And he shows himself uh, to be a fool. And so he's met with a deafening silence. Herod's response to Jesus is one of antagonism, and Jesus' response is simply not to speak. But I believe even in that silence, Jesus is redemptive. Because I believe if anybody was there that day who had an ounce of honesty, they'd say, boy, this is the first time Jesus hasn't spoken. Hey, Herod, you, you might want to reconsider what you're doing here. But Herod's made his decision, and he's going to move forward with it, even to his own demise. I remember last year, uh, George Carlin, the comedian, died. And George Carlin was a comedic genius. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend him to you if you're offended by uh, offensive language. Uh, but he's a, he was a brilliant guy. But he made a living off of making fun of Jesus. He made a living off of, off of making fun of God. And I remember the day he died, uh, my reaction was not, well, you know, good riddance, glad the church doesn't have to put up with that guy anymore. It was absolutely abject horror. Because if George Carlin didn't meet Jesus before he died, he now has to answer for his ridicule. He has to answer for his mocking. He has to stand before the one who is seated at the right hand of God and explain himself. I wouldn't want anybody, even my worst enemy, to be in that position. The deafening silence of Jesus shouts to Herod, wrong way. (laughs) Turn, you're going in a terrible direction. How do we apply this to our lives this morning? There are four events, there are four applications. Very briefly, there are this. First of all, I know there are people in this room that are disciples, and probably like Peter, you've said, you know what, I've blown it. I I look at Peter denying Jesus, and I go, you know, I... I didn't necessarily do that in a courtyard, but I see how I've lived my life sometimes in a way that denies I know him and denies I love him. I want you to remember that Jesus offers both correction and forgiveness, that Jesus acknowledges the truth of our failures. He doesn't say, oh, Tom, you're perfect. You've never done anything wrong. No, He, he knows the garbage in my life, the junk in my life, but he also meets that truth with a graciousness, with a compassion. For those of us who call him a savior and Lord, he calls us to gaze into his eyes to weep over our sins, yes, that's a very good thing to do, but to do that with confidence that we can come home and that we can experience forgiveness. You cannot out the grace of God that has found you in Christ Jesus. So it might be that after church today, you need to go cry a little bit. You need to examine your life. You need to go, boy, there's some things that are really wrong here. You might need to get before the Lord in that, but do that with the assurance that his gaze will also offer grace and mercy. What about to the skeptic, to the pilots in the room, so to speak, who look at a glance and go, this guy, are you kidding me? All I would ask that you do this morning is maybe take a little bit deeper look. Maybe go back and examine the character of Jesus. Maybe go back and look at, at all the red letters in the Bible, in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, and all the things that Jesus said and taught and performed, and his real purpose for coming to die on the cross for our sins. I would ask you not to let appearances fool you but let your heart and your mind gaze on Jesus and his claim to be your redemptive king. Maybe to Jesus' enemies, to those who who don't want anything to do with him, in fact, want him to violently be removed from their lives as the Pharisees did. My only thought here is that you need to be warned. (laughs) You can't win this fight. 
Someday you will stand before him. I read an article this week real quickly. Uh, an article was written that said that the Western church, uh, the Christian church in the Western hemisphere is, is doomed to failure within the next generation. Within about the next 40 years, the church is going to cease to exist. Let me tell you something. You can tear that up and throw it away. It simply isn't true. I know it isn't true because, because Jesus said that his church will endure to the end. It might get beat up. It might get persecuted. It might get knocked around. It might shrink dramatically. There might be a very small remnant left, but the church of Jesus Christ will prevail to the end of the age. And there's one other thing that you need to know is true, that Jesus is coming back. And he's going to set everything right. And we have to give an answer for our lives, for our choices. And if we choose to be an enemy of Christ, someday we will have to answer for that. And that is a battle we cannot win. And I believe Jesus is reminding the Pharisees that he will be sitting at the right hand of the power of God as a call to you and me this morning to acknowledge him as Lord and acknowledge him as Savior so we don't have to face him as judge. And then lastly, and most disturbing, is the mocker, (laughs) the one who simply makes fun of Jesus, who thinks you're an idiot for believing him, who has no time for such nonsense. It's not for me to say whether Jesus is going to speak to you or not speak to you. That's the Lord's business. It's not mine. He simply told me to do the best I could with what I have. But I will tell you this morning that the silence of Jesus is calling to you. He is being patient. He will allow you your moment, but don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. What a man sows, that will he also reap. I would beg you and plead with you to stop your mocking and to believe in the Savior who speaks graciously and truthfully, even in the silence. Let's pray. Let me give you just a moment for silent prayer, and then I'll close our time in prayer. Lord Jesus, in the silence of our hearts, you speak your truth. As we study this passage, there aren't very many red letters in this page of Scripture. There's a glance. There are a few words of rebuttal offered, and there is silence. Because your enemies had trumped you and were now in charge and control. You were still at this moment the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You could have put an end to all of it, but in your grace and in your mercy, you chose to be silent. And when you spoke, you spoke the words of truth. Father, some of us are just uh, ignoring the claims of Christ in our lives. We have decided that we have no room for such nonsense. We are skeptical that that this Jewish carpenter, this rabbi 2,000 years ago, could possibly have any relevance in our life today. Lord Jesus, show us the truth. Reveal yourself to even the harshest of critics.